So if you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, that will be our text this morning. But this morning I want to begin with a brief question. What does the normal Christian life look like? If someone were asking you about the faith, or even as you think about your own expectations, what is a normal life of discipleship? This morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. And now to begin, I just want to offer brief context because we're kind of diving into the book at a, at a particular point. So in Matthew, there are two significant themes that run through the book. First, you have Matthew writing to explain who Jesus is to provide an eyewitness account of the actions and words of Jesus so that you will have a very clear portrayal of who Jesus is, namely that Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate. This leads us to the second theme, the theme of discipleship. Seeing this presentation of Jesus Christ demands a response from us. And at every point in the narrative, Jesus is met by those who either love him or those who hate him, those who decide to follow him or those who reject him. There's no middle ground in the gospel of Matthew, just like there's no middle ground in, in life in general. When you hear the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're immediately confronted with the necessity to make a decision. Is this true or not? We cannot be ambivalent to these claims. And so at every point that the glory of Jesus is presented, we ourselves are forced to ask, what do I do with this? What does this mean for my situation? And what, what does it look like to be discipled by this man, Jesus? And so as we pick up at Matthew chapter 8, Matthew has already offered a very clear portrayal of who Jesus Christ is. In chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and that's followed by a long list of names of those begetting other names. Now, my temptation is always to jump over this because who enjoys reading genealogies? But in this introductory phrase, Matthew has already made profound claims about who Jesus is. So first, you have the word Christ. The meaning of Christ is the Messiah or the anointed one. The Messiah, as he is presented through the Old Testament, was the one in whom the hope of the future restoration of Israel was bound up. The appearing of the Messiah, that is the Christ, was for the Jews the point at which the Lord would make all things right and that he would restore all things and establish his kingdom in righteousness forever. The Messiah was to be the coming king of Israel who would sit on David's throne, which is where Matthew goes next. Matthew ties Jesus to the lineage of David, that Jesus the Christ, the, the son of David, son of Abraham. Now, if you remember from Aaron preaching through 2 Samuel 7, David is promised a throne that will have a son that will sit on it in perpetuity forever. Throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is tied to the throne of David as the future coming king of Israel. Here, the promised king is identified as Jesus Christ. And then finally, Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of Abraham. Abraham, if you remember, was the promised child who would be a blessing to the nations. More specifically, Abraham's offspring is the one through whom the curse would ultimately be overturned, going back to the promise made in Genesis 3.15. His son, Abraham's son, Isaac, failed. Isaac's sons failed. Isaac's sons, sons all failed. The nation of Israel ultimately failed to overturn the curse and to be a blessing to the nation. But here in Matthew, Jesus is identified as the true son through whom blessing would come to the world. 
So in this first verse, Matthew has already identified Jesus as the promised Messiah, the rightful king of Israel, the true son of David, and the one who would overturn the curse. Matthew then connects this with the book of Isaiah later on in chapter 1 and identifies Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, that is God with us. In chapter 2, at his birth, Jesus is worshipped by wise men. At his baptism in chapter 3, he is anointed by, by the Holy Spirit. And a voice from heaven declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ is totally unique. The fulfillment and culmination of all the promises of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is God the Son incarnate who will save his people from their sins. In chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. He is tempted by Satan himself, and he never once stumbles, never once slips, demonstrating that he is the fulfillment of perfect righteousness. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus, is the, Jesus, who is the Word of God, stands on a mountain declaring or preaching to his people, just like Moses preached the Word of God to his people. All of the prophets who came before would speak on behalf of the Lord, saying, thus says the Lord. But Jesus is different in that Jesus says, I declare unto you. Jesus teaches with an authority, not the authority of a prophet coming on behalf of God, but the authority of the very lawgiver himself. And the people recognized the difference at the end of chapter 7. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The authority of Christ was not as one who interprets the law, but as the lawgiver. Jesus is the Lord of glory standing in their very midst, fully God and fully man. And now it's this theme of authority that sets the context for where we find Matthew chapter 8. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The first point this morning, true discipleship, is the reorientation of our entire life around Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. True discipleship is the reorientation of our entire life around Jesus Christ. Jesus has demonstrated his authority through his teaching. Jesus has demonstrated his authority through working miracles. And now he has commanded his disciples to get on a boat and to go across the Sea of Galilee. And by and large, they obey. We are not told where this boat came from. We're not told where this is headed. We're not even told why they want to get in the boat other than that a crowd was forming. Simply get in the boat and go. Discipleship begins with hearing and obeying the command of Christ. Now, Matthew highlights two specific men who hear Jesus' command and they approach him and want to follow. Now, if we're to take a step back and think about how a modern preacher would handle this, a modern preacher would be ecstatic. They'd rush them down the aisle. They'd pray the prayer. They'd tweet about a successful revival. And then they'd carry their luggage into the boat. Especially seeing that one of these men is a scribe, one of the religious elite. Now we're starting to get some power to the platform. At this point, a preacher could think our cause is starting to gain traction. If we could get a couple scribes and Pharisees on board, maybe we could really get a hearing with some of the political leaders. 
but not Jesus. He doesn't rush them forward, nor does he even extend an invitation. Instead, Jesus warns them. You see, Jesus was not roaming around the countryside pining for followers. He wasn't begging people to jump on his cause or to partner with him, nor did the success of Jesus' mission depend on having the support of anyone, let alone any important persons or within the Jewish or Roman communities. The road of discipleship is long and hard, and many people set out on it, and I'm sure that we have all seen many people fall away from it. Discipleship is not simply praying a prayer and then doing whatever it is you want to do. And through these men, Jesus is going to demonstrate that the reality of discipleship is submitting to the Lord himself, submitting to the authority of Christ. The first man approaches Jesus in verse 19. As I said, scribes and Pharisees, were, they were part of the upper crust. And generally, Matthew presents these, this group, the scribes and the Pharisees, as being opposed to the mission and work of Christ. But here we seem to have an exception. And note the way that this man addresses Jesus, calling him teacher. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, those who are committed followers of Jesus never address him as teacher. The, the Pharisees and various other groups do, but Jesus' committed followers address him as Lord. This man says that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes, which seems to be a very committed statement, but Jesus sifts through all of this and gets straight to the heart of it in verse 20. When he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is it that Jesus is saying to this man? That if you're going to be a disciple, you can't own a home? No, Jesus is not laying waste to home ownership. Jesus' point is much deeper than simply whether or not we should own a house. Think for a moment. For a fox, what does a hole represent? For a bird, what does the nest represent? It's much more than simply a place to lay their head. It's a place of safety, a place of security, a place of comfort, of shelter. It's a place to rest more than a house. It's a home, a place of comfort. Jesus is not simply saying, if you want to follow me, you need to abandon your possessions. Rather, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you need to surrender your sense of security. You need to surrender your allegiance to this world. If you follow me, you will feel displaced. If you follow me, you will feel like a foreigner and an exile in your homeland. Your family will become strangers. Your family will become like foreigners to you. To follow Christ is to reorient every relationship in your life. It reorients your relationships to your friends, to your family, to strangers, but to your possessions, to your time, to your money. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ is not simply turning away from sin, though it is that. It is renouncing your own kingship and submitting your whole life to Jesus Christ because he is worthy of it. Before coming to Christ, we were all slaves of sin. We were prisoners of our lusts and desires. Our priorities and our values flowed out of that. When we turned to Christ, we were no longer slaves of Satan and sin, but we were translated into the kingdom of light and we were made servants of the king of the universe. He has total authority over our lives through his word. And that is why submitting to the lordship of Christ will change every relationship in your life because it fundamentally changes who you are. Submission to Christ is the radical reorientation of your entire life around the person of Jesus. Now think about this scribe. As a fixture of Israel's cultural center, this scribe had a lot to lose by following Jesus. He would not just be sacrificing a house. 
He would be sacrificing his position, his status, his job, perhaps his family, and his friends. Zacchaeus, think about Zacchaeus, he's a perfect example. Zacchaeus submits to the lordship of Christ. He's a swindler, he's a tax collector, and what does he do? He immediately turns around to repay all of those whom he's defrauded. The cost of following Jesus was massive for Zacchaeus, but he counted the cost and found Christ a far better possession than all of his unrighteous riches. Now, you might think, this is a a little crazy, perhaps cultish, that just some guy shows up and says, you're going to follow me and submit to my authority. And indeed, it is, if we think about it in terms of Basil coming up and saying that to you, or me coming up and saying that to you. But here's the difference. Again, Jesus Christ is totally unique. He identifies himself as the Son of Man. This is a reference to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The Son of Man is the universal King who has an everlasting kingdom who will rule all nations, all people, and all languages. Jesus has rights over this whole world. He has authority over every minute of human history and over every single person who has ever lived. And yet he tells us that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How do earthly kings and rulers generally use their power and their authority? Or how do cult leaders use their power and their authority? often for power, gain, wealth, influence, the building of themselves. Even in America, where we have, quote-unquote, public servants, how many of our public servants have decreased in wealth or increased in humility during their time in office? Probably not a single one. But Jesus, the king of the universe, is standing before this man saying, that you need to lose everything for the sake of my kingdom, just as I myself have become the servant of all. Jesus is not like the unrighteous rulers that we know. Jesus' authority is exercised in humility and compassion, in self-giving love. He does not ask more of us than he himself gave for us, namely his life. Matthew shows us this point from a different angle with the next man. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. First, this passage can seem a bit harsh, can't it? The man's father has just passed away and Jesus is basically rebuking him for wanting to go take care of that. Uh, Several scholars, many commentators try and soften this by questioning the sincerity of the man's claim. However, I think such debates miss the point of this passage. This passage is not highlighting the motives or the intentions of the disciples. This passage is highlighting, one, the true life of discipleship, but two, the authority of this king who's standing before them. This passage stands in as, as an example of what Jesus says a little later on in Matthew 10, 37-39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This man is being presented with the authority of Jesus Christ, who is able to demand everything from you. 
And Jesus here is setting himself on a higher plane even than this man's own family relations. The bottom line is this. When Jesus calls, you go. It doesn't matter the difficulty. It doesn't matter your desires. It doesn't matter your circumstances. It doesn't matter what your family says. When Jesus calls, you go. And indeed, this man finds himself in a difficult circumstance. His father has just passed away, and for the Jews during this time, caring for and burying your parents was the the last act of honoring father and mother. But Jesus responds, let the dead bury their own dead, or to put it differently. Let those concerned with worldly matters attend to worldly matters. But I, the Christ, am standing before you and calling, if you would come after me, you must surrender everything. In Matthew 8, 18 through 22, Jesus, or Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus has the authority to demand absolutely everything from you and that true discipleship, that is the normal Christian life, is seeking to bring every aspect of your life into submission to his authority, to bring every aspect of your life into submission to the lordship of Jesus. We know that the authority of Christ is, is mediated through the word of God, that is the Bible. And discipleship begins, brothers and sisters, we must become people of the book. When a question about our desires comes up, the questions that should guide your direction in life should be, what has the Lord said? When you're tempted to lust or adultery, what has God spoken? When we're tempted to gossip, to steal, to anxiety, what does the word of God say? When we shut up our compassion and have no concern for the well-being of our brothers and sisters, what has the Lord commanded us? Christ mediates His sovereign rule through His Word, the Bible, and the heart cry of the true disciple is this, what has God commanded of me? Christian, true discipleship does not withhold any compartment or area of your life, nor does it think that Jesus is going to leave some stones unturned. Jesus' rule is not just a Sunday morning church thing. It touches every aspect of your life. And I think that one of the best ways we can get to this is ask ourselves some reflective questions. How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in blank? How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in your relationship with your spouse? How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in your relationship with your children? How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in your use of your free time and how you you speak to and relate to your boss or your employees or your co-workers? And then ask yourself this, how should your life, how should your life reflect the rule of Jesus in these ways? The men in our story were being presented with the reality of discipleship and they were being asked to count the cost. And interestingly, we are never told whether these men follow Jesus onto the boat or not. And again, I think this is intentional, and I think it forces us to ask ourselves, have I submitted every aspect of my life to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ? Have I counted the cost, and have I embraced that cost? Though we are not told about these two men, we do know that several count the cost and get on the boat with Jesus. Look with me at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. As simple as that, Jesus' disciples get into the boat and look where Jesus leads them, verses 24 and 25. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. These men, think about them for a second. They've counted the cost. 
They've counted their lives as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. They have followed him, and look at where Jesus leads them. Jesus leads them straight into the jaws of a ship-destroying storm. Is that ironic at all? I think that this was intentional on the part of Christ, which leads us to the second point. True discipleship is the way of the cross. Think for a minute about the men on the boat. The most prevalent occupation that we're told for Jesus' followers is fishermen, uh, at least the ones we know. Fishing was an apprentice skill that fathers would hand down to sons. These men had been on boats on the Sea of Galilee probably for their entire lives. So they would have known storms because storms on that sea are a fairly regular occurrence. The Sea of Galilee is a fairly shallow body of water, so it's easily roiled up. You think about the difference of trying to make a wave in an Olympic-sized swimming pool versus your bathtub. Much easier in the bathtub. You combine that with the fact that the Sea of Galilee sits in a basin. It's surrounded by mountains, so you have cold air that mixes with hot air, which that generates storms very, very quickly. And given the shallowness of the sea, those storms are, are generally intense. These men knew the sea, they knew the storms, they knew their boat, they knew the rigging, but this time was different. The storm was great, the winds and the waves were battering the helm of the ship with wind whipping and rain driving. You can imagine the panic running through them as they're clinging tightly to these ropes, holding on for dear life. Panic is rising as all of their effort and back-breaking strain is availing them nothing until finally they think all is lost, and with the expectation of drowning, they call out on Jesus Christ. They had given everything to follow Jesus. In obedience, they boarded the boat, submitting their lives to him, and now Jesus had led them straight into the storm, and where do we find Jesus? He's asleep in the front of the ship. He's the perfect picture of a peaceful night's sleep in the, as the boat is nearly capsizing in the waves. Whereas the disciples thought this was the end, Jesus knew the perfect plan, and Jesus knew that this was not his end. It is not an accident that this account follows on the heel of the call to count the cost of discipleship. The journey of discipleship is not a path with padded and buffer zones from suffering. We do not follow Christ because it's safe. We follow Christ because he is worthy and because he is good. The path of discipleship is fraught with danger. It's fraught with challenges. It's fraught with struggles. The storms will rage all around us. We will feel like the disciples clinging to the ropes for dear life, maybe even wondering why we got on the boat in the first place. And these storms are not accidental to the life of discipleship, but they are the instrumental means that the Lord uses to demonstrate and refine our faith. The Lord does not lead his disciples into these storms because he's angry with them, but he leads them into this storm because he wants to show them something. How we weather these storms is a critical indicator of the truthfulness of our discipleship. We are familiar with the parable of the sower casting seed on various kinds of soil. The seed represents the preaching of the gospel and the soil, how those respond to it. Jesus explains this to his disciples, and this is what he says in the gospel of Luke. And the ones, the, the seeds cast on the rock, are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. The seed that is spread on the rocks falls away in a time of testing. That word is used to refer to calamity, affliction, or trial. Any sort of test that functions to reveal the genuineness of our faith. 
like a, the, a gold in a refiner's fire. This word comes up again in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. That is the normal Christian life. They are not strange, but they are true. They are central to true discipleship. Whether the trial is a struggle against sin, or the death of a loved one, or a terrible job, or a bad boss, or a horrible diagnosis, storms are the expectation of the Christian life. Eventually, the rock will drop on all of us. The storm will rage, and it will bring us to the very end of our strength and our ability, and we will cry in desperation like the disciples, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Discipleship is not storm avoidance, but it is clinging desperately to Jesus Christ through the storm. The disciples struggled against the storm all the while Jesus slept. And sometimes it feels like that for us, doesn't it? Like Jesus is asleep in our situation, like he doesn't hear us. He doesn't always seem to answer our prayers immediately, and sometimes he never calms the storm. Indeed, we're all going to face death. Sometimes we cry out over and over for months and even years, pleading and waiting and sobbing, yet nothing. Think of Job. Within the first two chapters of Job, Job has lost absolutely everything. For 36 chapters, Job pleads to hear from the Lord, and then he finally appears in chapter 38. Brothers and sisters, the only hope that we have to hang on to in the midst of this storm, indeed all of life, is to continue clinging to Jesus Christ, pleading, Lord, save us. Jesus may not calm our storms. He may not answer every single prayer in the way that we would like. But we have confidence that the storm is not an accident. And it did not catch God by surprise. We must seek to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. We must rehearse the promises of God and preach them to ourselves. That is the normal Christian life, clinging to Jesus and his promises at every single point. And so the, the disciples cry out, and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, I'm not really sure what the disciples were expecting Jesus to do, but look at verses 26 and 27. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Jesus stands, he rebukes the disciples, and he rebukes the storm. First, the fact that he rebukes the disciples has puzzled me for, for some time. The disciples' nerves are frayed. The disciples are exhausted. They've been straining against the struggle, against this storm, the fight of their life all night. And Jesus stands and asks, Why are you afraid? But the more I've mulled over this, the more that I have come to see how gracious this is for our Savior to say. Jesus asked the disciples a question that serves as a rebuke because I am sure that their faith was wavering. And how do I know that their faith was wavering? Because my faith wavers in the midst of storms. When we are afflicted, the temptation is that that affliction will draw our gaze away from Christ. It will draw our gaze away from the Word of God so that we focus simply on our affliction. We don't think about God. We don't think about His Word. All we can think about, pray about, dwell on is that affliction. Even something as simple as falling down a step and breaking a little toe, for the next eight hours, all you can think about is a little toe. Affliction draws our gaze away from Jesus Christ, and it turns our gaze upon ourselves. That is what it looks like for faith to waver in the midst of the storm. 
Are you facing trials today? Have you faced trials in the past? Are you always perfectly content in Jesus Christ when it seems that the world is crashing down around you? If you were like me, the answer is no. So think about this. Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith in him. That's personal, right? They don't trust Jesus. But then what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say, Sayonara, I'm done with you. Jump out of the boat and walk back to to shore while the disciples are crushed? No. Jesus stays in the boat. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we do not possess perfect faith, that we do not possess perfect obedience. He knows that our prayers are often littered with, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And yet he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He may not always calm the storm, but he will always hold us fast through the storm. And whether he calms the storm or not, the point is that at the end of it, we get to behold his glory. Jesus did calm the storm for the disciples in Matthew. He rebukes the winds, he rebukes the waves, and there is calm. The sea is peaceful. I am sure that, I don't, again, I'm not sure what the disciples were expecting Jesus to do. If they were saying, save us, as in grab a line and help hoist the mainsail. But Jesus, in answering their prayer, demonstrates that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. The only one who has authority over the seas is the Lord. Listen to this from Psalm 107. They, that is sailors, saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Only the Lord of glory has authority over the stormy seas. At at this moment, the disciples realize that this storm, which nearly brought them to their end, could be silenced by a word. A word from this man, Jesus Christ. And they are in awe, and they marvel at this man who speaks with the authority of God. And that is where this passage culminates. Discipleship begins with the command to follow Christ, with the command to submit everything to Him. The way of discipleship is the cross, it's toil, it's struggle. We take up the cross, we follow Christ daily. Yes, we do it because He's worthy and because He has authority to demand everything. But brothers and sisters, look at the reward. This is the reward that led the Apostle Paul to say, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss. Indeed, I count everything as a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Discipleship will cost you everything. But the prize of discipleship is that you get to partake in the eternal glory, in the eternal righteousness, in the eternal joy of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The road of discipleship is the way of the cross, but it is a way that gives way to the eternal weight of glory when on that day we will behold Jesus face to face and we will be embraced by the sunshine of His love and joy. This is possible because Jesus did not use His authority for selfish gain. This theme of authority is carried on in Matthew to chapter 9, verse 6, where Jesus says that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. 
You see, the storm that the disciples were facing was powerful. It was terrifying. But there is a storm coming, a storm yet on the horizon, and we can hear the rumbles of the thunder, and we can begin to see the streaks of lightning. But when this storm will break, no one knows. That storm is the storm of God's just wrath against sin. Each and every one of us has sinned and deserve to partake of this wrath. We have broken God's commandments, and because of that, we have stored up God's righteous and holy wrath. Now, this storm may seem a long way off, but it will break upon us in a moment. And that storm is not one that we can weather. No one can stand before the judgment of God. No one can make atonement for their own sins. But just as Jesus stood in the midst of the disciples and calmed the winds and the waves, Jesus has calmed the wrath of God and made peace. Jesus was righteous. He was spotless. He was perfect before the Lord, never once sinning against God in word, thought, or deed. For 33 years, he lived a life of service to his Father in obedience and out of love for his people. And the final act of his earthly ministry was taking upon himself the sins of his people and bearing the punishment that they themselves could not bear. He was mocked, he was scorned, he was beaten, and he was hung upon a cross where the wrath of God was poured out, the wrath of God that we deserved. The only thing that can save us from the storm yet to come is the forgiveness of our sins, the payment of the debt that we owe God, and for righteousness to be given to us because we cannot work for our own righteousness. Christian, this is our hope and this is our confession that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, the offer stands to be received by faith. And that is the reward of discipleship our ultimate goal, that we would be partakers in Jesus Christ, that he would be our great high priest and our advocate before the Father, that we would have free access to boldly approach the throne of grace as sons and daughters of the living God, that the storm of God's wrath is calmed through the rent body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we receive love and the indwelling Holy Spirit through him. And so as I began with the question, what does the normal Christian life look like? It looks like reorienting our entire life around Jesus Christ and taking up our cross daily because there is eternal glory on the horizon. Please pray with me.